Hello, Helen, and welcome to the Happy You podcast. Today, we're talking about what it's like to lose someone you love and the journey towards healing. I want to thank you um, for your courage, honor your feelings, and, and thank you for coming on to share your story. Thanks, Joe. It's my pleasure to be here. Cool. Well, Helen, we, we go some ways back, you know, we when um, a few years ago, I think we, we started working together in what came about to be a really cool project and making a difference, and which has been incredible. And, you know, I was going through my period of, um, I guess, healing after going through cancer. Uh, but tell me what was going on in your life at the time? Um, well, at the time, I think it was around the time um, right before um, I lost my late husband now. Um, so it was probably over three years ago. That it's that long that we connected and I can't believe it's been that long. Um, but through that, I think it was through that first year that we were working together that I I uh, was caring for my husband who um, had colorectal cancer and um, and working as well. And we came across each other, you and I, through, through work um, and collaborated. Um, and I was, I was doing a lot of, you know, I had my work life, but then I had my home life caring for my husband and my two children as well, which are, they were really young. They were about five and seven at the time yeah and it's such a, a difficult role as the caregiver Helen I know this being just by virtue of being on the other side of going through cancer as a patient and it's it's the role that doesn't get talked about enough because not only do you have to you know deal with you know uh, your own feelings and emotions and and you also have to support uh, the person you love who's going through it um, and kind of hold things together and and you also don't really like get the credit because nobody really thinks of you as the person who who you know might need support or attention or all of those things so tell me what was it like for you um it was it was really a hard time I was almost um, always going um, on auto if, if um, you know what I mean, I wasn't thinking about my personal well-being at all because I honestly didn't have time. And um, a lot of people would say, take care of yourself, but there's just no time because there's a care of someone that's going through um, cancer um, and is needs, um, you know, help with going to medical appointments um, getting medication, and then also being a mother of two children and having to take care of them on my own, as well as working full time, there is there is no time left. So it was very stressful, but I was almost, I, don't, I really don't know where I got the energy to be able to um, do everything that I did. It was like something that came from the heavens that I didn't even know at the time I was I, I had some kind of superpower um, because if I think about it now, I just don't know how I did it, but I did. Um, so it was stressful. I was fortunate to be working with a lot of people that uh, were understood my situation um, and really dear friends, people at work that became good friends. Um, and it was very strange because I actually worked in the oncology area. So um, it was almost like what I had been doing all my life for, um, you know, working, I suddenly was living it um, as a carer. So it was, I knew what was coming and I, I knew, um, I, I knew, I knew the situation from other, you know, other stories um, that had other families that had suffered similar experiences, and now it was happening to me. So I was almost, um, it was almost blasé. I kind of couldn't believe it, but yeah, almost on auto. Like when you say auto, you mean like on autopilot? Yeah, autopilot. 
I just, I don't know how I did everything, but I did. Um, and I, I didn't even let myself think about things too much because I knew that if I did think about uh, things too deeply or the situation we were in as a family too much, that would stall me from um, moving forward and being the support and care that I needed to be so um, because it would affect me psychologically. So I kind of put that aside um, and just did the caring, the caring bit. Um, and I liked being a carer in many ways. I, no one um, asks to be a carer. No, no, it's not something you expect to be. It's something that you're suddenly put in that situation. Um, I wish I hadn't had to be a carer, but um, I liked to, to, you know, be able to provide um, to my and support my husband and my children at the time. Absolutely, Helen. And what was it like that experience of being a carer? Like, what was it like? So it was very intense. Um, I can only I can only describe it with that one word. In everything was intense. Um, you know the hours that I was up, and then um, you know just getting up early, um, going quickly to you know take the kids to school, then coming back home, taking my. Uh, Michael to his medical appointments, um, always constantly aware of the phone while I was at work, just in case there was a medical emergency. And there was a lot of ups and downs. Um, so especially with cancer, I think it's very difficult because um, you get bad news and then you get good news and then you get bad news again and then you get good news and it's almost like a a roller coaster um that you just have to keep riding and enjoy the highs and just get through the lows so that's um it was almost like a race to always get to the highs um so very intense time of my life absolutely and what was it like for Michael? And tell me, like, like, what? Just tell me about Michael. Yeah, Michael was thirty-five when he got diagnosed, almost thirty-six, um, and it was a total shock. Um, I remember he started off having symptoms um, where he had tummy aches and he had urgency to go to the bathroom, and initially he was told he. You know, he just had a stomach bug, so they gave him antibiotics. Um, and then following that, he still had symptoms and they got worse. And so um, then they thought he might have some kind of food allergy. Maybe he was lactose intolerant, gluten intolerant. Perhaps he had Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So he had to do a lot of tests. And it wasn't until he had blood in his stools that the doctor, the GP was more concerned and did more serious tests and sent him to see the gastro specialist. Um, and, and then the gastroenterologist actually said to him, it's very, you know, you probably have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And I remember Michael was devastated. Um, but then, um, and he said, it's very, maybe 2% chance you've got cancer. And, um, and so he had a colonoscopy and then they found, you know, it was a shock. Um, but I got a call from the nurse to go and sit with him um, while he was waking up. And that, that kind of made me think it's strange the nurse is calling me to sit with him. Um, and then I kind of thought, yeah, strange. And when, when we got told that he had cancer, we were absolutely shocked. Although I worked in the, in the you know, in that space. Um, Michael was, you know, a young dad. He, we had young children. We felt like it was the start of our life almost. Um, we were, we, you know, we had a, a really beautiful house, young children. Uh, we had a lot of plans. He had just you know, got a really good job. Um, so, and I had a good job. So we were kind of, 
yeah, the start of parenthood and life and had a lot of plans for the future. So that kind of put a stop to all of that, all the plans in our, all of our life. And we, yeah, we were suddenly just always focused on uh, the cancer and him getting him getting better. And it almost totally gave us another path in life. We had to stop all of our plans to just focus on that. Um, so he, you know, he was had lots of friends. He was very social. Um, and he liked to, you know, do lots of sports. He was a basketball player. Um, and yeah, he just really enjoyed life. We just, you know, we went, we went out on lots of trips. We we'd go on traveling together with the children to Spain every year um, to see my family. And yeah, we had a really good life. So uh, when when the news came, it was kind of very very devastating. And that 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 crazy roller coaster of going through the highs and the lows mm -hmm. of going through cancer. That that whole period, you being a carer. Like, what is maybe one or two memories that that really comes to you now that 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 really kind of stand out as being kind of really strong? Well, definitely the memory of um, us getting the news. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, I remember what the kids were doing, what our plans were um, after he had his colonoscopy. We wanted to go out and have dinner because. He hadn't eaten for 24 hours. <laughs> so, um, and we had a, a au pair at the time. So she was with the children waiting out. I remember that moment clearly. Um, that was something I'll never forget. Um, when the moment he died in the last couple of days, um, that's something I'll always remember. Um, it was almost unreal, to be honest. And he he was almost like a different person by then. Um, but it was, you know, having the child managing the children that day, um, and how to tell the children, although they kind of knew it was coming, but it but it you always never understand death, and especially as a child. Um, so that I will never forget. That was a difficult time. Um, and then I think, yeah, the last, the last, um, trip we did together was really memorable. So he, he knew, we knew what was coming. So we made sure we took a really, uh, fun camping trip. We, uh, actually we took a caravan, which is definitely nothing I would ever do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like hotels better, but, um, he was, he wanted to, take a caravan trip with the children um, and go up the coast from Newcastle to, um, you know, Brisbane and just spend some time together and make make a really memorable trip. So I remember that one clearly as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just beautiful the way that you talk about it. And, you know, speaking of, of kids, Helen, like, what was it like, I guess, from the time that Michael got diagnosed and um, and all the way to, you know, uh, Michael passing away? Like, what was it like? How did you guys talk to the kids? What was it like? So Gemma, my um, daughter, she was pretty young. Um, so she would probably been about three when he was diagnosed, uh, almost four. And my son was about um, around five, um, almost six. So he remembers it more. Um, at the beginning, um, we kind of just told them that daddy was sick, um, and that he was going to be sick for a while and that, you know, the doctors were trying to help him. Um, and they kind of, you know, my daughter didn't really realize much at the time, but my son, my son did. Um, and as time went by, we kind of started telling him a little bit more about about it. So he'd he'd go to school and he'd just talk to the teachers about it like it was a normal sickness. And I remember my son not recent, you know, recently, not that long ago, telling me, you know, mommy, when you told me that daddy was sick, 
and he had cancer and that it was serious, I thought it was serious, like he had a really bad cold. He said, um, I didn't understand that it was so serious that he could die. Um, so, yeah, he'd go to school and say, my dad has cancer. <laughs> Um, and, you know, he would tell people and the teachers and he, he didn't realize the seriousness of it um, until later. Um, and he was a bit older. He was, you know, seven, eight. He started realizing that daddy was really, really sick and he had daddy had changed a lot. Um, and then my my daughter just I think he probably barely remembers Michael as Michael before cancer. Um, but she realized um, really at the end how sick he was, um, you know, when he was um, in his last few months. Um, I think it was really hard the last, you know, the last um, few months when he was losing, Michael was started losing it a little bit at the last, even the last month. Um he started, sometimes he would um, just maybe think he was somebody else um, and say some weird things. <laughs> um, and the kids sometimes would be like, what's daddy saying? Or what's wrong with him? Why is he saying that? Um, one time, this is a funny story that we always remember. Um, we, um, we were... Um, I was downstairs in the house and Michael yelled, yelled, where's my charger? Where's my charger? And, um, and I said, what charger? Your phone charger? And he said, no, my, my, um, my charger for my suit. And I said, what suit? And we had watched one of those superhero movies the night before. <laughs> and uh. He thought he was one of those superheroes. I can't remember the name of the superhero right now. It's that the one, um, you know, the I can't remember, but he was he needed the charger for his suit. And um, and then I looked at him and I said and I and I went upstairs and I said, do you know what you just asked me for? You asked me for the charger for your superhero suit. And he kind of looked at the empty air and the kids were looking at me like what's he talking about <laughs> and um and then he realized oh my gosh what have I said so um the kids started noticing those things a little bit um and that was that was sad because I think that's when they really noticed um yeah that he was really declining um so with kids it's hard because you don't know what to tell them um, and what not to tell them. Um, Michael was very scared of being completely honest with them because he didn't want to make them sad. Um, and to be honest, he didn't want to believe it himself that he was going to die. Um, and that was difficult for me because I was the opposite. I, I wanted to tell the children because I knew what was coming and I didn't want them to be um shocked um I wanted them to understand it when it happened um so we kind of didn't agree on that and that was hard for me because you know it was it was going to be for me to left to manage um and you know for the well-being of the children but Michael didn't want to believe it himself so he didn't want to tell people that he was going to die because he didn't want to believe he was going to die because he didn't want to lose the hope. And, and I understood that as well. So it was, you know, like a catch 22 type of situation. And you use the word intense as well, Helen, what was it like for you? Cause I mean, that's, that's, um, that's just a, such a crazy and just time. What, like, what sort of feelings did you have on the inside? Um, I had, I was really sad, um, you know, and music was really hard for me because I'd, I'd drive a lot um, from the office to my house. It was like a two-hour drive at the time. And 
I couldn't listen to music because it would just make me bawl and cry. So it was really, or, and depending on who I spoke to, um, it was hard to have conversations with people because the first thing they would want to talk about or they would ask me about was Michael. And, you know, the day before I would have, for example, gotten the really bad news that he had another tumour in his liver um, and they're asking me how he is and, you know, I just didn't want to think about it and um, it was hard. People were really nice. Everyone was so supportive. But, of course, it was really tough having conversations so I, I wanted people to help us and support us and, and talk to us. But at the same time, I didn't want to have to cry every time I spoke to somebody. Um, and so it was really tough. Um, yeah, it was sad. It was just sad. Yeah. So, but I, I couldn't be sad. Like um, around Michael, I was, I, I didn't, cry very much um I I because I was really around him I was just you know very switched on to so um but it was when I was by myself that those feelings came and just the thought of he's not getting better he's you know he's definitely going to die uh, you know it's a matter of time what's gonna what's our life gonna be like you know um trying to find help for him, you know, trying to find other options, but every, you know, there's no options to for him. So really trying to change my way of thinking as to we need to live today um, and enjoy the time we have because we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, and just trying to think like that, but in a time that is so, sad and where things are changing constantly was really really tough and that's where the intensity comes the feelings were all over the place and um and it's hard you know when you feel like um just being sad um but you kind of can't because you have to work because you have to be around the children because you don't want you know I didn't want Michael to see that I was really sad. Um, so kind of keeping that to myself until I was by myself, that was really hard. And, you know, it's so tough to do what you were, you were describing and trying to stay in the moment and enjoy the things that you can enjoy. Like, was there something that was helping you to feel that way? Um, yeah, I did a lot of... I did a lot of exercise, to be honest. Exercise was um, really helped my mental health. Um, I would go for uh, very, very long runs um, when I when I had the time. Um, I would do intense workouts at home. Um, I would do yoga as well. So exercise really, really helped me because it was almost the only thing um, I could do it on my own um, and, you know, it, it kind of helped me clear my mind a lot. Um, so that's kind of what really got me through a lot is getting a little bit of time to go for, for a really strong, fast um, run. Um, but then that was tiring as well. That made me exhausted. Um, but mentally it helped. And you were saying, Helen, that, you know, you, you were keeping it together until you were on your own. How did it feel when, when Michael passed away? It, it was a very weird emotion of, um, I was, I was really, really sad. It was almost like a moment of, you know, a really strange moment of silence. Um, in a way, I was relieved because I knew he wasn't suffering anymore. Um, it felt like, it did feel like I was very relieved. Um, I also felt suddenly very alone um, because my other half 
was suddenly disappeared. And I've never, I haven't had any part of my body go, but um, I have a feeling that it would, it, it felt like a limb or something of mine had been chopped off um, because for almost 20 years, I had lived with Michael. So like I only knew my adult life with him and suddenly he was gone. Um, I remember the last moments um, were, you know, I was with him and he, he wasn't conscious. He, he was breathing really hard, but I was the only person there. Um, and I was talking to him and I think he heard me because um, his kind of even breath would change a little bit depending on what, what I was saying. Um, and I, and at the end, the last moments, I, I said, you, you need to go now. You, you can go. We will be okay. And he took his last breath and he went. So I think he understood. Um, and I was, I was relieved, but it felt, I was felt very lost and alone. Yeah. I was like, what do I do now? You know, I've been a carer going always busy caring for this person and living with this person for 20 years and caring for them constantly. Um, and now he's just gone. Like what, what almost like, what do I do? <laughs> and what did you do? Um, well, it was almost like the time kind of dictated what I had to do because um, it just happened to be the start of COVID. So there wasn't much I could do. In my mind, I would have probably gotten on a plane and uh, gone on a away with the children to some island for a month um, or even, you know, back to Spain to my family. Um, but I couldn't. So... Um, the children and I just, it was literally that day, that week that um, COVID kind of, there was a lockdown in Australia. And I mean, the, it was very intense because to be honest, I had, I was suddenly in shock with all of these feelings. And even in the hospital right away, as soon as Michael passed away, um, you know, people contacted me about the funeral um, and two days later I had the funeral people at my house um, telling me we have to have the funeral in four days at the latest because after that we can't have anyone at the funeral um, because of COVID so if you want to have some kind of funeral celebration um, type of thing you have to do it in four or five days um, they said, you need to send us pictures uh, of Michael and you and the family that you want us to, you know, showcase. You need to send us some songs um, that are meaningful or Michael liked. You need to send us, you know, your speech. Um, tell us who's going to speak. And Michael had just passed away two days ago. <laughs> And I was thinking, you wanted me to do all of this while, you know, while I'm just lost this person um, that, I, you know, that was so meaningful to me and just having to go through pictures and songs and writing my, you know, my speech, which I couldn't even, um, actually my little daughter had to read it, um, was really, really hard. So that's what I had to do. I mean, the day he passed away, I felt very lost and relieved and kind of alone and it was strange. But then right away, it got busy again with funeral um, plans. And the lockdown. So that's, that's happened the right there. And so obviously the next few years, you it was it was COVID like what was that you went from just straight like this intense period of of grief into this crazy new world what was that like? It was very uh, 
very strange, a very strange time. And in a way, I think COVID was good for us, for my family, because um, in a way it kind of gave me time to mourn without too many people around me. So me, my kids and I could, you know, be together and mourn together uh, without having to think of driving to places like work or driving the kids to school or, um, but on the other hand, it did feel very isolating and very alone because I couldn't, I couldn't, my family couldn't come and visit. No one barely could come and visit. you know, I couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere. So we were kind of forced to stay in the one place. Um, And I just immersed myself in work. Um, And, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations during that time, Joe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was just in my little office at, you know, at home. And um, I had um, meetings online back to back, um, and it was very, very, um, yeah, isolating, but in a way it was good for us to kind of mourn and think about what, what direction we wanted to take next in life. Um, at the same time, right after, you know, somebody dies in the funeral, then you have the really difficult part of, you know, um, dealing with things like, credit cards of the person that's passed away, their car, um, you know, a lot of things that all the bills were in Michael's name. Um, So changing all of that, um, emails, addresses that I didn't know his password. So a lot of information that I needed to get was like having to be a detective. And that was really hard. Even, you know, my son with his PlayStation, you know, it was under an account that Michael had made with a password and we didn't know how to manage that. So it was um, all of these little things kept happening that kept, um, yeah, that kept kept me reminding of what had just happened and, and it was really hard. But it was a good time for us to really, yeah, think of what the next way forward was. And I had a long time to think about it over two years. And it was almost a, a turning point. Um, this, you know, losing Michael um, was the most awful thing that's happened to us. But at the same time, it really saw us, it really gave me the opportunity to see life with a different light and see the value of every moment and every day um, and all relationships and how grateful we should be for what we have Um, and, you know, the memories and the experiences that we get to to have in this world and and that we can't waste any moment um, because it's, everything, you know, is very valuable in life. So we can't waste any time because time is the only thing you can't buy. Um, And it really highlighted that to me, this experience. And so my way of thinking really changed. Yeah, that's that's incredible, Helen. And when you say that your, your thinking has changed, what do you think was also played the part? Was it those the time that you really did have time to talk to the kids? You had time to be on your own. You 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 obviously couldn't be out with people even if you wanted to. Did so what how did that how did you think about it? Did you have lots of conversations with the kids? Were you journaling? Were you thinking of things on your own? Like like how did that that work for you? Well, I had never really thought about, I hadn't, I never had time to think about my life as a single mother um, because, you know, I, as soon as Michael got sick, I just started caring for him and it was almost like a race until his last day and even a few months after to get a lot of things sorted um, after he passed away. Um, So, 
having this time during COVID kind of in lockdown, um, I started experiencing life as a single mother and it was very different. It's very different to, you know, um, and I'm not talking a single mother that's divorced. I'm talking about my specific situation where the only thing my children had was me. Um, and it really put things into perspective. I started thinking things like, um, what if anything happens to me? You know, something's happened to Michael that was very unexpected. We never thought this would happen. Um, what if something happens to me? Who will the children have um, around them? Um, you know, even times where I'd go... Um, Sometimes, you know, lockdown, there was lockdown, but there was moments where we could kind of work and it kind of came and went and came and went. And there, I did a few trips to Sydney for work. Um, and I remember driving to Sydney and just the drive from Newcastle to Sydney, I was scared that I'd get into an accident or something would happen to me and that I wouldn't be able to pick my kids, that they wouldn't have anyone to pick them up. And, um, and it, that really started bothering me, um, that thought. Um, so I started thinking, well, maybe I need to be around people that are family, that, you know, my close family. So I started thinking of what if I relocated back to my family in Spain? Um, so, that, yeah, it really... Um, helps me think of future plans and how can I do it? And, you know, um, it was strange. Like even, you know, going to see friends at the time or when friends would come to see us, um, it was really sad because they'd come to a house where they were used to coming with Michael and Michael wasn't there. So there was this sense of something is really missing here. Um, and, you know, we made the most out of it. We weren't, you know, we didn't go into depression, but mourning doesn't only happen, didn't only happen to me. It happened to everyone that he knew. Um, the difference was that I mourned all the time and other people only mourned perhaps when they were in a situation that reminded them of him or came to see us where he lived and everything reminded them of him or even when we were around them because he was always around when we were around friends. So um, when we'd be around friends and he wasn't there, it almost reminded people of him passing. So that was really hard and it started, yeah, I started thinking maybe it's time for a change of scenery and you made the change and yes. such a huge epic change Helen. yeah um, tell me what was what was it like going through this change um well it was very exciting because i need we needed a new you know direction i think um i did and um i started thinking that it would be nice to go back to my family in spain um so Michael and I had spoken a lot about moving to Spain at some point, but it was a really, you know, things happened in life and it, it kept us in Australia, which, you know, we, we love Australia and it's our home as well. But I needed to be closer to family just to make sure that, you know, if I wasn't around or something happened to me that they had support. I needed, we needed a change of environment. And so I started exploring. I started talking to people about it, um, about my thoughts. And, you know, I'm a believer that if you want something to happen, you need to talk about it. You need to think about it. And you need to almost act like it's happening. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then it's happening. So that's what I started to do without, you know, um, I started talking to people about I'm thinking of moving, you know, back to Spain. And then I started saying, I'm moving back to Spain. And they would say, when? And I'd say, I'm not sure, but I'm moving back to Spain soon. 
Um, And then eventually when COVID finished, um, and this is when I made the final decision, which I was already 90% sure about it um, in my mind, Um, but I came to Spain for a visit, Um, literally was February of last year. And I came to visit my family just for three weeks, first time since Michael had passed away. So from 2020 um, to 2022. Um, And I spent some time and I said to my mom, I, I, you know, I'm thinking of moving back. Um, I want to see what the opportunity, what schools there might be for the kids and what kind of houses or places we could live at. So we made a few appointments while I was visiting. Um, we had a look at a few houses and um, and then, you know, I hadn't signed them up to a school yet when I left and I hadn't, we hadn't bought or rented a house or anything like that. But by the time I got back to Australia, I had made the decision that that's what I wanted to do, to move back to Spain um, with the kids and the two dogs and my cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then so then I just made it happen. Um, that was in February, and in August I was in Spain. And by August I had left my amazing job of, you know, eight, nine years at the same company. I, I think that was the, one of the hardest things to do. Um, I had no job in Spain, but I thought, you know, I'll, I'll find, I'll, I'll make it work. Um, so I left my job. I put, I put my house for sale. Um, you know, told the school and all our friends um, our plan, um, and I booked a ticket. Actually, I booked three tickets, and I started organizing pet travel. <laughs> Um, and I think when I booked the tickets and I did the pet travel, that was kind of like, okay, my tickets are on this day to fly to Spain. So I need to sell the house and I need to leave my job and I need to do all of these things by these dates so I can make that flight. Well, Helen, I such you're such an inspirational person in so many ways, but I just love that this idea that you just make things happen. You just decide, you put it in play, and and then everything kind of aligns and works towards that. And you know, Helen, one, one of the things was I really noticed when speaking to you over, like, you know, uh, over Zoom, and when you were in Spain, like, you all of a sudden, it seemed like you looked different. Um, no. <laughs> tell me what was, I mean, what was, what, what is that experience? Cause obviously you moved, um, you and the kids and you moved countries and you changed job and it was such a profound change. So how, what's, what's it like for you now? Um, well, just now, I feel like now we're just about now settling in. It's taken a while. Um, because although I'm originally from Spain, I left Spain when I was about 18, um, 17. So um, I almost felt like an ex, like a expat, um, like more Australian in Spain than Spanish for the first few months. And it was, it was crazy. I was for the first month, it was very relaxing. It was August, people were on holiday, we were going to the beach, my mom was here um, at, at the house. And you know, um, it's like, okay, I'm here. It felt like I have arrived. Um, It was almost like I have um, achieved, (laughs) achieved (laughs) what I have, what I was looking to achieve. And it was almost like, so what now, what do I do now? Um, So I had enrolled my kids, you know, in, in a school, about three weeks before I left Australia, I looked at the school and my mom helped me get a house before I landed. So she, there was a house for us to come to. Um, But there's little things like, you know, things like I had an international driver's license because I got my license in the U S and then in Australia, but 
you need a Spanish license if you are a resident of Spain. So I had to I had to go to driving classes like I was a 18-year-old person <laughs> <laughs> um, and take the driving test, which is quite difficult here in Spain. It's not that easy. Um, so I did that for the first few months, focused on, okay, the first thing I need to do is get my Spanish driver's license. Um, it was almost, um, you know, little things like that, that you have to, you know, get my kids a Spanish ID. Um, there was a lot of, you know, um, little administration type of things that, that were kind of annoying. But um, coming to Spain was almost like it, I felt a little bit at peace. Um, I, it felt like, you know, we're... Although I was starting over, I felt like I was completely starting over. I had a great job in Australia. We had a beautiful house. Um, we had our group of neighbors that, you know, everyone knew us. Um, we had our school community. <clears throat> I had an amazing work, you know, work colleagues and um, a really good network at work um, and outside of work. And coming back to Spain, it's, almost like starting over, like, and I see it, um, it's sad to leave, it was sad to leave everything I had in Australia, but it's almost like an opportunity to start over um, as me, because in Australia, I felt like I was me and Michael and I, um, so it felt more comfortable um, to be me here, um, yeah. I have to, I suppose I describe it like that. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I just love the way that you describe it, Helen. And so being me, like what Helen is like being you today, what are your plans? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What well, does, does the future hold? Well, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really <laughs> tell you. But um, as I said, I'm a believer of what, what you want, you need to say and you need to think and, and believe and then it'll happen. So, I mean, my hopes and dreams, um, you know, I, I've, I've got a good job. Um, I started working in um, February, so... <laughs> Um, at, a, at a, another similar situation than I was working in in Australia. So that's that's great. Um, but my hope now, putting everything else aside as me, is to that I feel like I want to grow as a person every day um, and I want to really make every moment count um, and I really want to, travel around Europe with my kids and the Caribbean. Um, so we booked a cruise already for this August all around the Mediterranean. Um, cool. I want my children to see the world with me um, and I want to make sure that they've got lots and lots of really exciting and amazing memories and experiences um, as children so they can remember that. Uh, when they grow up um, and yeah I just really um, love collaborating and and supporting people and helping people um, I think it doesn't come only from my previous work that I did in Australia but also it's just a personal you know um, I just get so much out of helping people um, and people that have gone through difficult situations and suffering um, because I know what it's like. So if I can help others that are going through a similar situation, um, that gives me a lot of um, positive energy and positive vibrations. And, and um, yeah, and I'm, I, 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 that's what I want to do. So I'm exploring uh, ways of how, how I can do that. And um yeah, even exploring with you, um, you know, because I know that that's a passion of yours. So, um, but yeah, I think what's important and what life is 
um, brings to us now is the fact that I've got this gift that Michael left um, that I've really realized the importance of time and the importance of living in the moment. And in most situations, people don't understand that unless they go through a really difficult um, situation of trauma or suffering. Um, and I've been through it. And I see, I see this as a gift now um, because I see the world with different eyes and the beauty in everything. Thank you for sharing your gift, Helen. Thank you for sharing your truth. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you for being here, my friend. I want to deeply honor your life, your story, and where you are today. And it's my hope that this show, it, it serves you in some way, because I believe that we are all just capable of so much more than we think sometimes. And, and, and this incredible potential of what we are capable of and leading a life that you're proud of, that you're excited by, what I tell myself, so they my loved ones. That's what I'm here, just sharing this, this with you, right? And I have this vision. I have this vision for bringing together survivors. Survivors of trauma, of difficult experience, of difficult circumstance. Whether that's going through sexual abuse, domestic violence, living with illness, going through war. Bring together people who've been through it or are living through difficult times, their loved ones, so we can come together to give, give our best and our lives in, in, with our loved ones, in our communities, in our work, to grow, to grow towards our dreams, towards our hopes, towards our desires, and to heal, to heal from difficulties and struggle, and making sense of what's right for you today. That's why I'm here. That's why I wrote my book, Finding Hope in Times of Uncertainty, a guide to thriving in the challenging world of today. And if this vision, just if it speaks to you in some way, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you if you could email me at joe at powertobehappy.com. That's J-O-E at powertobehappy.com. Whatever you want to say, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know what you think. And thank you again so much for being here today. I'll speak to you next time.